Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Roberta Barbulini and I'm the technical manager here at Biopractica and I'm very excited today to be joined by Alex Brewster. Now Alex is the principal practitioner at Healing Hands Natural Health Centre in Ipswich, Queensland. She's a naturopath, a nutritionist and a Western herbalist and she also spent 30 years as a registered nurse and midwife working in fields such as general surgery, obstetrics and gynaecology before she retrained as a natural medicine practitioner. Alex has actually completed her Masters of Health Science at the University of New England in 2015 and then in 2017 she completed a Diploma of Biological Medicine at the Paracelsus Clinic in Switzerland and she explored traditional European methods of practicing natural medicine through those studies. Alex is also a fully certified Institute of Functional Medicine practitioner. She's one of only eight IFM practitioners in Australia and in her clinic actually actually specializes in mental health, stress, uh, endocrine support and gut issues. And that's why I'm so excited to be talking to her today about this interconnection between the gut and the brain and between mental health and gut health. So thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting us. How did you actually end up becoming a practitioner and how did you end up specialising in these areas of like stress and mental health and gut health? Tell us a little bit more about your, your journey to where you are today. Well, look, the gut is my favourite topic. It really is my favourite topic. It started a long time ago. My son is 32 years old. And when he was eight, um, they started making noises at his school that he may need, inverted commas, a little bit of help to concentrate. And I knew nothing in those days. I was a registered nurse. I was midwifing. And I thought, no, I'm not doing it. I, I'm, not, I'm not giving it. And, you know, all due respect to anyone who could go down that um, path, but mm. I thought I'm going to, you know, try other things. And so I just started looking at our diet and thought, and I just started reading numbers. I was just lucky um, that Sue Dengate was in town. I was privileged enough to go to one of her lectures. Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's so much in food. And of course, then I started looking at this, the crap we were feeding our patients in hospital and thought, how can actually we make breast milk on this? You know, and then we, we completely changed. Zach was eight. And by the time he was in year eight, he'd say to me, oh, mama, don't give me that food. It makes my brain go foggy. Yeah. And then, of course, then I started, I've already, I think I'd already started studying. I thought, oh, I need to. And I, and I was at a crossroad. I was looking, I was nursing this baby, screaming baby in the middle of the night, and I thought, there has to be a better way. And I thought, okay, what am I going to study? I'm, you know, and, and I looked, I honestly looked at traditional medicine mm. and I looked at other things. But um, then I actually, in the days before the internet, thought, mm, looked at, got all the, what were they called, prospectuses of all the, of all the uh, courses, and I thought, nah, I'm going to do natural medicine. And I think it's because I'm German and I've got those German roots. I don't know, or like all of us, it was just, it's just interesting. Um, and just because Zach, we worked so hard with Zach um, to, to get his brain working with food and nutrition and absorption thereof, that's why I naturally fell into that um, space, I guess. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a lot of practitioners who are in this field are drawn to it because of either a personal health issue or someone really close to them. Because I think what it does is it gives you a really powerful motivation to want to learn more. Absolutely. And interest, you know, and I, I actually honestly thought as, as the midwife of 30 years, I thought, oh, I'm going to specialise in fertility and hormone health, which I do kind of do anyway, but it all comes from the gut. Yeah. In the end, the, it's all roads lead to Rome, all known, so known as the gut. And I mean, I think, you know, that's why there's that really um, foundational idiom in naturopathic medicine where the gut is the seat of health. And I guess that's what we're really here to explore a little bit today is, is that interconnection between the gut and the brain specifically. So mm-hmm. maybe in broad terms, Alex, you could tell us a little bit, how are the gut and the brain connected? In broad terms, um, like we know if we actually pull our gut out, our gastrointestinal tract from top to bottom, all of it, like and pull it out and smooth it right out, bad English, it would cover the surface area between 100 and 300 square metres. That's literally one to two tennis courts, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that, of course, is going to impact a lot, you know. And why, why is it so big? It's, of course, to help us digest our food, but we actually can't do it. We actually need help. And we have help in the form of what is now collectively called our microbiome. Mm-hmm. And that's the 10 to the power of 14 gut bugs that live in our gastrointestinal tract. In fact, 95% of our DNA is actually not ours. It's <laughs> microbial, as we know, right? And, but it goes further. Those little gut bugs digest our food. Yeah, great. That's excellent. But they also make 98% of our neurotransmitters, serotonin, GABA, dopamine, acetylcholine, melatonin. I honestly say, think that people say they feel like crap for a reason. You know, when, when, when our gut's not right, we don't have those neurotransmitters. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and don't forget that, you know, the mid-molecule for both dopamine and, and, and thyroid hormone is tyrosine. So the gut, if we've only got a limited amount of tyrosine from protein ingestion, tyrosine mm. comes from protein ingestion, um, and then our gut bugs are busily making dopamine because we're too busy fighting tigers and need rewards so we can keep on living, what's going to happen with the thyroid hormone? That's what the T in T4 and 3 stands for, right? Tyrosine. So the gut bugs are overproducing dopamine because you're fighting tigers. It might be at the sacrifice of thyroid. I mean, it's actually a clever little mechanism our bodies um, to slow the hell us down so we don't get eaten, really, when you think about it, right? Mm. So that's the first link. And our gut generally shuts down when we're fighting tigers. And we're talking about physically, and that's go back 50,000 years. I made that number up, don't quote me. <laughs> um, you know, so we're out there fighting tigers or rival clans or what have you. So our gut has to shut down because it's got time to digest food when we may be a meal ourselves. Oh, that's fine if it's one tiger. But what happens if it's multiple incessant tigers? Yeah. What happens? And especially what, look at us in particular, I know I'm talking to practitioners and, you know, um, kudos to the men out there, but a lot of us are women and women are very, very good at juggling those balls, right? Each one of those little balls are tigers. Yep. So, so the gut doesn't get the ideal um, environment it should and the gut microbiome changes. So we get an overgrowth of those lipopolysaccharide LPS producing gram negative ones, which cause inflammation. You know, we know now that inflammation, um, uh, inflammation of the, of, of anything will cause inflammation of the brain, but what, well, you know, it's not, it's actually not a, um, it's not a, um, a bad thing, inflammation all the time. I mean, clearly we needed those LPSs in there just to stimulate our immunity, probably because 
you know, if we did get scratched by the tiger, so we wouldn't die of some raving infection. But too much, and then we get those micro-inflammation of those enterocytes. And so I always say to my patients, if you imagine those two tennis courts worth of little cells locked together like little Lego bricks, they've even got the bumps, hey, the microvilli. And now we've got micro-inflammation thanks to all those lipopolysaccharides. And now we've got little balloons trying to get together and that's leaky gut. Mm. Now every, every single practitioner knows about leaky gut. Um, you know, the funny thing is the other day I had a patient come and say, oh, yeah, my, my, um, my, sur- my what did she say? My gastroenterologist doesn't believe in leaky gut, but he did believe in increased intestinal permeability. I remember reading a study, and again, don't quote me on this one. It was a 2016 study, and they actually found as um, a <coughs> excuse me a correlation between the microbiota diversity in our gut and the fragments surrounding our um, CFS in our brain. Mm. So how does it get there? You know, okay, we know that um, we've got 80% of our immune system sitting behind the gut. Um, and then anything that goes through has to go through that, what I always call customs. We were talking about traveling earlier. Um, but if you have, if, you, if your sieves literally turn into a colander, our gut associated lymphoid tissue becomes overwhelmed and becomes inflamed. And then through the vagal nerve is that direct line up to the, um, to the, to the brain. And then, yeah. of course, you know, I say don't piss off your microbiome because you're going to feel like crap, right? <laughs> so if those guy bugs aren't happy, they're not going to make all those neurotransmitters in the numbers that they, they would normally have been intending to, mainly because the population of the good ones aren't there in the first place. So I do think that's one of the reasons. Um, there's so much more, but that's how, in a broad terms, they're linked. Oh, I'm raving, but you know. No, no, no. You've covered some really key, I think, connections there. You know, I mean, you, you've talked about how the balance of the gut microbiota really influences things like neurotransmitter production and therefore through the vagal nerve connection, you know, like that connection with the central nervous system. Um, and you've talked about yeah. leaky gut and that leaky gut and LPS can cause inflammation. And that obviously we know that systemic inflammation can trigger neuroinflammation. That has a huge effect on you know, neurological function and neurotransmitter balance. And then I think the point you made as well about nutrients and how altered gut function can alter nutrient absorption and nutrient handling in the body. And, you know, if you don't have the basic building blocks for neurotransmitter production or neuron repair then that's obviously going to have a huge effect on brain function and mood. so lots and lots of you know really good biochemistry linking the gut and the brain thank you alex i really appreciate that you're welcome given the importance of um the microbiome and, and the gut in general for moods and, and mental health if we look specifically at the, the links between gut health and depression how are these two interconnected well, it all starts with the, those disruption, right? We were talking about that. I mean, how, let's have a just quick little key point. And I'm, I'm preaching to the converted, so apologies, guys, but it has to be said. You know, we got one dose of antibiotics disrupts our microbiome for three months. Mm. Now, you know, even if you have, I, I mean, and no disrespect to antibiotics. When I first came to Australia, I actually contracted tuberculosis. If it wasn't for good old antibiotics, I'd be dead. Mm. You know, so they, but they have collateral, collateral damage. Then we chlorinate our water and that's important. So we don't die of um, waterborne illness, but then we add pesticides, you know, and then we have stress, we shut the gut down. So now we're on this hamster wheel, you know, and I, as I said, I've thought long and hard about this. Why, why in evolutionary terms would, would this happen? And I do think it's 
you know, we, we, we um, slow our gut down, we slow our microbiome down, we have a depletion of tyrosine, for therefore that is thyroid hormone dysfunction, and that kind of makes us go into the cave to lick our wounds and survive. Mm. So that's the first point on an evolutionary stage. So we're not getting killed by the tiger, the rival gang. Huh? The gut bugs also make B12. B12 oh, and, you know, biotin and vitamin K and all those other wonderful things, thiamine folate, riboflavin, B5. But B12 in particular we know is our main methylating nutrient, right? Oh, mm. folate. So basically what happens if our gut's not working properly, we're not digesting, and we're not, we, ca a, we can't really activate the B12 in our foods because our extrinsic factor's not working in our stomachs because we're too stressed. But then our gut bugs aren't making it, and then we, are, we can't methylate the junk serotonin, dopamine, and GABA in our brain. So then we get a buildup of all this junk in our brain, and that causes anxiety. So that's one spot, right? So um, we can't detox our old neurotransmitters, so we get a buildup of that. So that's that's anxiety. Um, of course, if we don't even have enough of it, like serotonin, which um, we know with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs are the drugs they use for depression. Mm. So yeah, it's we've got to look after these little fellas, these ten to the power of fourteen. They 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 are the ones that are keeping us happy. Um, so it's where I, I really think, and through the vagal nerve, and the, as you said before, the, system, uh, the central nervous system, they have a direct link. They have a direct link up to the brain. And I think that's why we're now starting to see evidence emerging that, you know, certain strains of probiotics, for example, can be used yes. successfully in people with mood disorders or even, you know, the connection between diet, like that if you eat a diet that's rich in digestible fibres and prebiotics, that that influences gut microbiota, which then influences moods, for example. Yes. I always say to my patients, eat the rainbow, I'm not talking Skittles. <laughs> because... Because, you know, the, you know, I remember Marie, I think it was Alessia Fasano was saying that, you know, the different, oh, no, it wasn't. It was someone in the functional medicine team. But, you know, the different colours feed the different species. Mm. So we have a rainbow of food diet. We are going, and we know, Roberta, it's about the diversity. It's as you said. So the difference, so in the old days when we used to just feed everyone acidophilus, I mean, it's still useful. But there's, we have to have that diversity of gut bugs that all like to interact with each other and have a chat together, right? Yeah. And I so think, you those, know, sorry, I was going to say no. that the key to, to colours in your diet is that all those different colours are different phytochemicals and those phytochemicals is what's helping to feed and promote the growth of all those different yes. species and strains of bacteria. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. But I'm curious, one thing that you mentioned very briefly that I wouldn't mind exploring a bit more, Alex, is you mentioned that cortisol can have a really detrimental impact on the gut microbiome. What can chronic stress do to the gut microflora? Well, basically, it goes back to you ain't got time to digest food if you're going to be a meal yourself. So yes. this is an innate evolutionary survival mechanism so what happens when we all know about the hpa axis we know um, we release adrenaline and cortisol um, to help us sort of get that initial shock and then gets you know start running and cortisol does all those effects like you know um, dilates our blood vessels and gets blood into the into the um 
into the limbs, it makes our heart beat faster along with adrenaline, mm. you know, because we need the blood in our muscles so we can run or, run or fight. And then you think about what the signs of anxiety are to start with. But then, of course, all that blood and all that stuff that is happening in the external part of the body so we can survive the fight has to be fed away from something. And then that's at the detriment of the gut. So the blood mm-hmm. supply does deplete a bit. Um, and then basically, that's fine if it's one tiger, Roberta. But mm. if it's multiple incessant tigers, it was meant that that was meant to happen like that. But if it's multiple incessant tigers, you know, if you're the, the woman that's got to get her kids to daycare or a father, if you're the parent who's got to get their kids to daycare before six o'clock so you can open up the clinic, you know, so you can, you know, find out where you missed out on that telly for the FPOS for the night before. Um, you're, you know, you're lucky to make the kids lunch, but have you made yourself proper lunch so the nutrients not there? Um, there's already five tigers. Yeah. You know, and long-term cortisol can be, we know it can inf- affect the way we um, metabolise our blood sugar. We know that because when doctors, uh, physicians order um, the prednisones and stuff, they've got to check for diabetes later on. Yeah. You know, and we know simple sugars are the worst, most detrimental things for our, um, for our microbiome. So there's a number of reasons, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, definitely, as you say, it's not ever really one thing, but there is that strong connection where increased stress, you increase sympathetic nervous system activity, you increase cortisol, that has an effect on gut motility, on nutrient absorption, on digestion. And also, I'm pretty sure I've seen research that shows that increased stress will increase leaky gut, it'll increase dysbiosis. So the whole thing is, again, um, interconnected, but both ways, isn't it? Because it's like gut dysfunction can worsen your moods and your stress response. But chronic stress also seems to have a detrimental effect on gut health. Yes. Yeah, I mean, how many, how many studies are there around now linking chronic constipation with um, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, for instance? Yeah. And I also saw some research recently that was looking at how Parkinson's disease can be linked to antibiotic overuse. Um, so, you know, again, that connection. I saw that with, one. That was, yeah. yeah. So can I ask then, when you're looking at patients in your clinic, you know, patients that might have these kind of mood symptoms or neurological issues, how do you know if the underlying cause of their mood disturbance is actually a gut problem? What clinical case-taking or tools do you use to figure that out? Roberto, it's always the gut. <laughs> Honestly, I th- when when I was look opposing this question, postulating this question, I thought, oh my goodness, um, you know what? How how do I know? I always treat the gut. Only twenty percent of our patients have GIT symptoms, but everyone in the Western world had literally has some form of increased intestinal permeability. Mm. We've got that mental stacking going on. Those balls in the air. We have poor nutrient intake. I've talked about chlorine, um, triclosan. Triclosan has been banned in America in the EU. And you know the stuff in Total Toothpaste? Yeah, yeah. So that's been banned as, as causing not only cancer, but we actually know that if it trickles into our uh, guts, it's an, anti, it's an anti-septic. Um, yeah. It's going to destroy, destroy our microbiota. And don't even get me started what we're doing at the moment. I don't understand why people can't just use soap and water. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I think you you raised some really good points about almost like the overuse of antimicrobial substances. And, you know, I've read some really interesting research where they talk about what they called the industrialized microbiome, where those of us that live in the industrialized world have this damaged gut microbiome. And I mean, okay, so it's things like trichlorosan, it's things like chlorine in the water. What else is it in our modern environment that has such a damaging effect on the microflora? 
what doesn't? But um, uh, like my, you know, my husband is a wastewater engineer. He'll tell you that more people die worldwide of waterborne illness I, I, than anything. I get it. I get why we have chlorine in our water, yeah. but it kills bugs. And then it makes those chlor chloroamines or whatever they're called, which also cause, you know, cancer. But other things are, of course, the ubiquitous use. Again, I'm of antibiotics in our food chain 70 percent of antibiotic use is not even used in humans it's used in um livestock mm, production yeah right um uh, yeah there's one that's that actually eludes me right now but i know as a nurse we used to have special dispensation we used to have to get special dispensation to order it for our patients yeah i i live ipswich is pretty semi-rural so i see the best of both worlds really have a lot of farmers a lot of farmers come and see me and um, they tell me, they tell me what they put in their feedlot feed and they, I've got a guy who makes the feed for the feedlots. Mm. They tell me what's got, what that, that antibiotic goes in it and they use it as a growth promoter, which is really interesting because they initially they put it in because these poor animals, you know, have to stand in their own excrement and they said their feet didn't rot. But then they actually found if they fed them this, oh my goodness, what is the name of that antibiotic? They feed them this antibiotic, surprise, they get fatter. Why? Yeah. Because they kill their microbiome. And we'll have a look around at all the, the non-thin people around at present. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's not just that, but right. But um, so that's definitely the, um, the indiscriminate use of, of antibiotics and everything. And the other thing that needs a special mention is Roundup. Mm. You know, uh, again, I've got a, I, this, is, this is a bit of a funny story, actually. Like I have a patient, a husband and wife team, retired farmers now, live out on the other side of Mount Alfred, Alfred, beautiful spot in our southeast Queensland. And um, they came and she was really sick. She was really sick. And he was going, oh, I don't know what's her, you know, I did all the spraying and stuff and whatever. So now I learned from him that they pretty much spray wheat fields two weeks before con um, before harvest. So how did he put it? So the crap doesn't go in the harvesters. And I went, oh, so the crap goes in our bodies instead. Mm. So but we know our Roundup holds a patent for an antibiotic. That's how it works. You know, the, the gut, the, 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 um, it destroys with the digestive system of the plant, knowing this as in the soil. But the funny thing is, he used to get up on his bloody plane, didn't he? And spray, and she'd be sitting in the house. Oh. No wonder she was sicker. Yeah, right. You know, so, you know, and then, and, and so, and, that, and he reckons that you have to, you do get a, um, a warning that you cannot feed that drop to your cattle. And I said, oh, yeah, but it's fine to, you know, harvest the grain two weeks later and feed it to our babies. How is that even possible? It's interesting, isn't it? And, yeah, I mean, when you think of infants and children, it's not just the food that they're eating. I mean, it's even factors like uh, less breastfeeding occurring and, you know, what yes. is maternal nutrition oh, like. Yes. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of factors that are detrimentally affecting our gut microbiome. And as you said, that gut microbiome is so critical for helping support mental health and the stress response. And they do say that, you know, it's if you have, if you have intranatally, prenatally or in the first three years of your life, the gut microbiome is irreparably damaged. Yeah. And I reckon it's four generations. And, you know, when I first started nursing, now don't exactly quote me, but the numbers are something like this. So my first day of nursing was July 1982. Um, I didn't learn about, about autism, Roberta. Mm. No, one, no one learned about autism. Mm. You ask any five-year-old now. Yeah. They all know about autism. The, the genes haven't changed. Yeah. But in functional medicine, you know, that's, that the genes are only one leg of the health stool. The other two legs are your environmental and your physical envi your environmental and your spiritual environment. Something's turned those autism genes on. Mm. And, I, and it has to be the gut. 
it has to be the destruction of the gut through food and antibiotics and, and overwhelming toxins through our system. I always, I, my, my husband and I are, are kind of space nuts, so we watch a lot of the, the old footage of, you know, the man on the moon and stuff. And you watch those guys in Mission Control, you know the ones? Everyone's yes, seen pictures of, of them. They they would all flip and be autistic now. <laughs> but it's interesting. But they, yes, keep going. Their brain was on fire, mm. like uh, good. Now their brains are on fire as inflamed. Yeah, yeah. They're not dumb kids, hey. Yeah. These kids with autism. But they just got brain inflammation from all the stuff that's going on in their gut. And gosh, what does, <laughs> I'm sure we've all, in fact, my receptionist, when someone rings up and says, can your, you, can your naturopath do something about autism? They always make a disclaimer and say, it's not just swapping the pill for a herb. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about, it's about changing the whole lifestyle. And what do these kids eat? Chicken nuggets and French mm. fries. Yeah. And ironically, I often find with patients who are on the autism spectrum that, you know, they, they have a lot of aversions to food textures or particular flavors. So their diets get more and more restricted and it becomes yes. a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle where poor dietary yes. choices affect their guts. Their gut, you know, physiology is so imbalanced that it has a really detrimental effect on the neurochemistry and the whole thing kind of keeps going. We're on the hamster wheel again. That's right. But I think you also make a really important point there, Alex, around the, 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 those first 1,000 days, you know, the, the yes. nine months we spend in utero up to about yes. age two or three and yes. how critical that is for establishing a healthy microbiome. Yes. And even like the appendix is actually there for a reason, reason mm. isn't it? And um, it, it's not as gung-ho anymore, but they used to just whip that appendix out as a matter of course. I always say the good Lord put it, put something, it's not a, they, they put it there for a reason. It's there for a reason. And it's, the, and it's at the junction, isn't it? It's the junction of the small and large intestine. That gives you the clue. So what have so you seen, what is the function of the appendix? It's the seed factory for our, our and, and, and our, our repository for our archaea. I'm just trying to think who, this probably was a functional medicine thing, actually, one of our lectures. Um, and they, they actually reckon it's where, where all the little bugs go to hide in, in mm. so far. Like the little seeds are there if they, if they have a, a massive bomb in so far as an antibiotic insult or anything like that. You, you know, that's a, and that is in my intake form. I ask everyone, have they got their appendix? Because mm. you can ask, oh, do you, um, have you had surgery? People forget their appendix because they don't think it's important. Yeah, it's almost like the Noah's Ark for our gut flora, isn't it? Yes, like that's right. All... I love yeah. it. Yeah. The and Noah's you... Ark. If you, if you have something like a, you know, you need to take a course of antibiotics, as you say, antibiotics can be life-saving. So you take them, but then you need that gut flora in the appendix to re-inoculate the, the, the gut and, yeah. and set it back to its, its baseline setting almost. Yeah, cleaning up, you know, um, cleaning up the collateral damage. Hey? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, given that there's so much in our modern environment that can be so damaging to gut flora, what do you actually do with your patients to get their gut healthy, to get their gut microbiome back in balance? What are your go-to supplements, herbs, et cetera, et cetera? Well, first of all, they get the talk. <laughs> <laughs> I, draw them, I draw them the picture of the little Lego bricks and I talk about, you know, the inflammation and the sieve and the colander and the gut-associated lymphoid tissue and the, and the link um, uh, up to the brain. I have, I have, but I don't want to make it overwhelming, of course, because I can be a bit overwhelming. I first and foremost, of course, talk about um, diet. So mm. I have three rules. Only eat food that rots. 
Because if the bugs outside are going to like it, the bugs inside are going to like it. Yeah. Only eat food that your great, 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 great times eight grandmother would have recognised as food because that's pre-industrial revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the food your gut bugs recognise. So your great, great, great grandmother times eight wouldn't have recognised margarine or highly processed foods, but she, or even some of the breads around, white bread wasn't around, you know, before bread improver. Um, yeah, so I think go go back and before you put it in your mouth, think, would great granny times eight would have eaten this? Mm. And my third rule is only God is perfect and even he rested on the seventh day. You can't, well, you can't completely be guilty about because we have this orthorexia now. We know this, don't we? Like we're all familiar with orthorexia, like where people think they just can't eat anything anymore. Mm, Um, So I just say, be kind to yourself because there's research to show that the guilt surrounding poor food choices is often worse because of the cortisol, et cetera, et cetera, than the food itself. Yeah, I think that's such an important lesson. You know, whether you call it a cheat day or a rest day or just, I think it's almost a mindset as well of, you know, don't aim for 100% perfection because, as you say, the stress of trying to be perfect is actually more damaging for your gut potentially than just having that one piece of chocolate or that one glass of wine, whatever it is that people, you know, feel like they need on that treat day. Yeah, and in the Western world, we have cheesecake and coffee, for goodness sake. Wouldn't the world be terrible if we couldn't have cheesecake and coffee? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, and then I just want it's really funny. When my husband and I have 30, my husband and I have 33 years, when we we're first going out, he knew when he rang out, because we were big foodies in Sydney, he, could, he had to ask if cheesecake was on the menu because I wouldn't go unless there was cheesecake. But cheesecake <laughs> ticks all the wrong boxes, doesn't it? Sugar, dairy, gluten saturated fat you know it's but it's so delicious oh absolutely and you know what i think there's also something to be said about getting a little bit of micro exposure to things yes great for you so that you build up your resilience yes that's why i don't call it a cheat days in my clinic it's a yeah. treat day yeah that's a nice way to frame it actually yeah. i like that I, I try and um, as much as great granny times I would not have recognised gluten-free, it depends on the, um, the extent of um, their gut issues, whether I take gluten out of the diet or just make it organic. Mm. Um, soy is, is um, a, a big no-no um, for a lot, like in particular, unless you can guarantee organ, organic soy, yeah. because they, if you think gluten, you know, they spray that with Roundup, soy they use Paraquet. Yeah. And I know this because I was talking to a farmer who um, lost his brother-in-law in the Lockyer Valley who got, th- I think, three mils of paraquet in, like he accidentally ingested it. He was dead two days later. <gasps> wow. And that's the stuff they spray on our soy. Now, that's interesting because what you're saying is that, you know, some people's reaction to gluten, some people's reaction to soy. Okay, some of it may be a genuine allergy to the proteins, but you're saying that some people are actually reacting to the pesticides. The exactly. Yeah, yep, yep. 30-hour sourdough is allowed in my clinic if their gut's not too bad. Um, and, if, you know, then I always say fresh is good, free range is better, organic is best. Mm. Um, eating, eating the rainbow, as we discussed, protein at every meal, whether, whether you're vegetarian, vegan or uh, full-on carny, it doesn't matter. We mm. need good quality protein at every meal. And goodness gracious, who else is it seeing out all those vegan meals out there that they, they, they're just food-like substances? Have you ever seen what's in those things? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
It's, it's an interesting trend, isn't it? I mean, whilst I'm a big fan of plant-based eating and, you know, I think that the, the, the of vegetarian eating is great, but some of the foods that are on the market now as, as vegetarian or vegan-friendly foods, it's not food. Your great-grandmother No, it's food like something. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's so, some really and, um, great tips in there. I love that whole idea of, like, you know, fresh is good, but what was it, fresh is good? Free range is better, but organic is best. Yeah, that's great. And so um, you do what you can. And we talk about washing pesticides off and they're just mm. rinsing with water is not going to work because every time it rained, the farmer would have to respray. Yeah. So we, um, we have a chat about what we can use. And I usually say use a good organic detergent and some vinegar to rinse. Or they, the research does show that sodium bicarb releases about 80% of pesticides. Of course, there are those foods that um, are systemically pesticided, like broccoli, cabbage bananas strawberries are the worst mm. um and there's one more so they they you can't wash that pesticide off so i say to people if their gut's really bad or if they really got struggling with anxiety and depression they're no foods for them unless they can source them organic yeah it's almost like you know those, those lists that you can find that the dirty dozen and they're the ones that are so sprayed heavily that you really yes. off just avoiding them or if you're going to buy yes. them buy organic yeah absolutely yeah yeah but the herbs i tend to um the use i um if they've got overt gut symptoms i like the good old plain Gut herbs we've all used, you know, slippery elm, a little bit of lactoramnosis, I always think is great for gut inflammation. Shizandra, globe artichoke, especially if they're cranky. Mm-hmm. A bit of a bit of PHGG or something similar that will you know not that won't aggravate SIBO but still feed the good bugs. Yeah. If um if there's a hormonal picture, I'll do psyllium, of course. If there's a yeah. bit of estrogen overload, of course, mag. Magnesium. Who's yeah. using magnesium? One of electricity. Um, you know, but we've got to watch magnesium in various forms because it um, is not very tolerated if we have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nutrients like zinc and B6 to make sure that GABA doesn't go down the glutamate pathway is also really important. Um, different zincs to make sure they can um, absorb them properly. With any passion flower and theamine are my go-tos for anxiety. Um, GABA if they're really anxious yeah. and I always give GABA with B6 and zinc because the amount of time I've given GABA and these and they're either pyrroles or and they just shuffle it right down the glutamate pathway and it makes it worse yeah right so I, I give it to I give them well I give them zinc at, at dinner time and the GABA at night yeah and I, mean, I do I... love um no I do love licorice and phospholipids as well I think there's a great lesson as well, kind of how understanding the biochemistry can help you tailor a person's prescription to them individually. Like you say, give the GABA, but make sure you give it with the cofactors that you need for those things to actually be metabolized properly. So, I mean, looking at connecting the dots, I think you've given us a really good overview of some great nutrients and herbs and, you know, things like PHGG as a prebiotic, as well as some really good dietary strategies. But what about lifestyle? Have you got any kind of favorite lifestyle recommendations for the gut brain axis? For years, I've listened to His Holiness the Dalai Lama saying we must meditate for an hour. And when I go to yoga, I find that, you know, I'm thinking about what I'm cooking for the night. And because we're all mentally stacking. Mm. But this four, seven, eight breathing, it snaps you in to the parasympathetic nervous system um, control in five breaths. Mm. So I say to my patients, how about you do this every time you go for a wee during the day? Equate it to something really common. So that's easy to get five breaths in. Yeah, absolutely. When, and, and when you're going for a wee. And someone something that people have to do anyway. So Correct. You know, it's not like you're doing anything else at that point. That's right. <laughs> 
It's like when I was midwifing and the, the mothers had come to me afterwards and said, but I can't get my pelvic floors in. I say, just do 10 every time you change the baby's nappy. There you yeah. go, snap, done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, always, always treat constipation. I, find, I think constipation, I don't know, this is just my personal opinion. I think when a patient is constipated, they, well, they, you know, they seem to really be cranky. Mm. So I always try and treat constipation and the amount of, in particular elderly women I've seen with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's who have had years of constipation and it breaks my heart. Mm. And all you have to do is give, there's some really delicious magnesium citrates around, you know, and then you've got the double thingy whammy of getting some nice magnesium into them as well. Diarrhea, of course, we treat as well. And the other one that is a little bit of sacrilege, I, I always say for the gut microbiome, please, please don't overdo the exercise. Yeah, okay. Because that's, you know, it's fine to go and smash the weights and do all that sort of stuff if you're not adrenally fatigued. But the minute you're already stressed and then you go and hit the gym and, you know, you see them there, all their faces have sort of shut down because they've worked so hard. And they feel very noble about it, and that's great. And they might have released some adrenaline and cortisol. Oops, what mm. happens to the gut? Yeah. So, you know, I say, look at, the, look at the blue zones. Look at the blue zones. They don't, none of them do those, I don't want to mention any names, those hardcore physical yeah. fitness yeah. thingies where they say, you know, your warm up, my warm-up is your workout or whatever they say on their T-shirts. But um, they all just go for walks, collecting their foods, usually after a meal, the walk in the Alps or um, the yogis. How fit yogis look? Yogis look. Mm. You know, so I really suggest in particular if there's a lot of mental stacking going on in patients' life, I say just for now, unless they're men, men seem to cope better. But in particular for women, I don't, don't, you have to be so robust to be able to do hardcore physical exercise. Am I saying sit on the couch and play um, video games? Absolutely not. We have to get active, but find other ways to do it. Which I think, you know, is back to a lot of what you were saying before. It's about balance. It's like, it's, it's not that you don't want to do no exercise. You don't want to do this intense exercise that actually is a form of stress for the body and increases cortisol production. It's about yes. finding that balance in between. Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that, you know, when you go for a walk, you can't have a quick, quick sprint. And you think about historically, I'm talking, you know, that 50,000 years ago again, what do we do? We'd sort of, you know, the boy, the men folk could track the animal and have short sprints to catch it. The women, we would be behind we'd be the gatherers and we'd, we'd only run away from um, danger. Mm. So sort of so, slow, steady, sustained physical yes. activity. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's a good word for it. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, there's a really interesting collection of clinical pearls in there, Alex. I love it. I mean, I love this idea of suggesting that your patients actually focus on things like, you know, moderate exercise and that they focus on things like stress management and sleep. And, and even that point that you made about something as simple as constipation. And I say simple because mm. it's one of those things that's easy to miss clinically. But mm. you, know, you, you think about it, if a patient's not going to the toilet regularly, the, the amount of toxin enterohepatic recirculation Correct, that's going to be yeah. happening you know it's all going to increase that that inflammation that we were talking about before that leaky gut or intestinal permeability it's all um ultimately driving that imbalance in the gut brain axis isn't it yeah and there's two tennis courts worth there that's, that's right. a lot of inflammation even if it's micro 
And I think, you know, so much of what we've been talking about is really about keeping those, those two tennis courts as clean and healthy and balanced as possible. And I have to say thank you so much for sharing all of that information with us. We've certainly covered a lot of ground, I think. And I just wanted to say thank you as well to those of you who tuned into our podcast today. I really hope you found the discussion interesting and useful. And please tune in again next week for our next Biopractica podcast episode. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.